Welcome to today's episode of HealthTree Radio for AML, a show that connects patients with acute myeloid leukemia researchers. I'm your host, Katie Braswell. We'd like to thank our episode sponsor, AbbVie, for their support of this HealthTree Radio for AML show. Before we get started with today's show, I'd like to mention a few upcoming events. On October 25th at 2 p.m. Central, I will be hosting a show with Dr. James Blatchley of the James Comprehensive Cancer Center at Ohio State, who will be giving us an overview of the current landscape of AML clinical trials so we can get a sense of what's being studied and what types of new treatments appear to be promising. Also, in October, we are excited to announce that we will be hosting our very first adult AML chapter event. Dr. Stein, an AML expert from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, will be giving a presentation on the importance of personalized medicine for AML and discussing why it is crucial to be treated by an AML expert. We will have more information about both of these upcoming events posted next week on our website, and you will be able to register for them at healthtree.org slash AML slash community slash events. As a reminder for today's show, if you've joined us online and would like to be able to ask Dr. Reagan a question during our Q&A period at the end, you'll need to call in via telephone to 515-602-9728 and press 1 on your keypad when you're ready to ask your question. Now on to today's show. The use of the immune system to treat patients with AML is being heavily pursued as a strategy to more effectively fight AML and give patients with relapsed or refractory disease a better chance at achieving remission or a cure. Immunotherapy in the form of allogeneic stem cell transplantation has been a foundation of curative therapy in AML since the 1970s. While the effectiveness and tolerability of stem cell transplant has improved over the years, significant limitations still exist warranting the development of new and improved immunotherapy options. In today's show, we are very fortunate to have Dr. John Reagan, an AML expert from Lifespan Cancer Institute at Rhode Island Hospital, here to talk with us about what steps you can take if you have relapsed or refractory AML. He'll be discussing what immunotherapy is, its current use in AML, and his open clinical trial looking at whether the FDA-approved drug, gemtuzumab, followed by an infusion infusion of blood cells called leukocytes from a donor, can stimulate the immune system to potentially fight AML. We are so pleased to have you here with us on the show today, Dr. Reagan. Before we get started, let me provide an introduction for you. Dr. John Reagan completed his medical degree at Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, and did his internal medicine residency and hematology oncology fellowship through Brown University. Dr. Reagan is now the director of hematology for Lifespan Cancer Institute at Rhode Island Hospital. He is also an assistant professor of medicine at Brown University. Dr. Reagan is board certified in hematology and oncology. His current research focuses on awakening a patient's own immune system cells to recognize and target their blood cancer. This project is termed non-engraftment donor leukocyte infusions for refractory hematological malignancies. The central aspect of this project, which we will be talking a lot about today, is a clinical trial in which white blood cells taken from a relative are transfused into patients with leukemia that have not responded to to, to traditional therapies. Thank you, Dr. Reagan, for joining us today. Thank you, Katie, and thanks uh, for putting this together. This is a great uh, opportunity from HealthTree to talk directly to patients about different problems with AML. Well, we're so happy to have you and have you share all of your knowledge with us today on such an important topic. Um, Let's go ahead and get started and jump into our discussion. 
I want to start by discussing relapse and refractory AML. Can you explain to us what these two terms mean? Sure, because sometimes they get sort of uh, packaged together with relapse refractory AML. But so uh, an AML relapse means at some point you got into some form of a remission. Um, remissions are a little bit funny with AML in terms of how they're graded. But for the most part, when we say someone's in remission, it means that they have restored their normal blood count. So they make white blood cells now effectively and they make platelets effectively. And they've at least eliminated the leukemic cells, which, which are called blasts. And that's based on a bone marrow biopsy. Um, and that, achieving that means you've, you've gotten into a complete remission. Um, you'll sometimes hear some other things out there whether someone has measurable residual disease or MRD. And so those are very, very low levels of cancer still being able to be detected within the bone marrow. And that's on an order of about one in 10,000 cells. So if, if you don't, if you're MRD negative, it means that down to a level of one in 10,000 cells, we can't find any leukemia. If you're MRD positive, it means we can still find that very, very small tip of the ice, iceberg. <clears throat> um, a, refractory, excuse me, a relapsed AML is when you get into some form of remission and then the AML comes back. Um, and that means that it probably was there. You know, it probably was still lurking somewhere in the background. We just were unable to detect it. Refractory AML, on the other hand, uh, means that your AML was never, was never in remission to begin with. So those are patients that are initially diagnosed, they're treated, and unfortunately, we're not able to get them into some form of remission. That's great that you broke those two apart because, yes, they do get lumped together a lot. And obviously, they're different, different terms. Um, so relapse and refractory disease happens all too often in AML. Can you talk about some of the reasons or maybe even theories as to why AML treatment doesn't always work for people? Sure. Um, you know, the backbone for upfront therapy for AML is chemotherapy. <clears throat> and a lot of patients on here who have had AML will probably have gotten um, two drugs called 7 plus 3, which the 7 is 7 days of a drug called cytarabine, and the 3 is 3 days of a drug called donorubicin. And 7 plus 3 has really been born out of extensive studies over decades at multiple cancer centers and sometimes amongst the cooperative groups to find a better regimen for AML. And unfortunately, we, we haven't found anything better other than just increasing the Don Rubison dose um, for patients if they're young enough and healthy enough to tolerate it. Um, as you can imagine though, chemotherapies, traditional chemotherapies are, are not very uh, sophisticated. They're not nuanced, they kind of kill off every cell that's there. And some cancer cells are efficient enough in either pumping out the chemotherapy drugs, um, and so they actually get them out of the system, or they're just, by nature of themselves, resistant to the chemotherapy. And sometimes the reason behind that is chemotherapy relies on cells act actively dividing and rapidly dividing. And so that means the cells turning over very quickly and going into something called cell cycle where it's, it's duplicating itself. Um, if the cell, though, is, is this word we use called quiescent, which means it's kind of resting, it's kind of slumbering but still around, it's harder for chemotherapy cells to kill it off 
And that, that seems to are chemotherapy cells, chemotherapy drugs to kill it off. And that seems to be one of the, the modus operandi of cancer of AML cells in, in a way that they persist is that they are resistant inherently to these chemotherapy drugs. Um, and remember, all you really need is, is a few AML cells to lurk in the background. And so what happens is you might kill off the AML you see, but also AML by and large is a heterogeneous type of cancer. And by heterogeneous, I mean that there might be multiple clones of the AML lurking in the background so that while one clone might be dominant initially, and that might be sensitive to the chemotherapy, one of those smaller clones that's there, once the dominant clone gets knocked off, one of those smaller clones rises up and results in the relapse. So the traditional chemotherapeutic drugs don't always lead to curative intent with AML. And that's, that's a big thing that happens, especially in patients over 60, that inherently a lot of their cancer is resistant to AML. The other thing you have to think about, too, is if we're mostly using chemotherapy for these patients, um, as we get older, it becomes inherently more difficult to tolerate chemotherapy. And when it becomes inherently more difficult to tolerate chemotherapy, you can't get as high of doses of chemotherapy. So a high-dose chemotherapy that might work for somebody might be intolerable for somebody else because of either age or other medical conditions that they might have. So how would a patient know if they've gone through treatment and have experienced a relapse or maybe they didn't respond to it at all? What are some of the tests that would be run or maybe even symptoms they may have? So the easiest symptoms is always to remember what did you initially present with. And if you feel like those symptoms are coming back, that should at least, you know, heighten the suspicion for some sort of relapse. Um, the other thing that you can always look at, though, is the goal of treatment in AML is to restore normal blood counts. And chiefly the way you can monitor that is by how many red cell transfusions and how many platelet transfusions you require. And for the most part with treatments of AML, the first thing you'll see come back or the first thing you'll see normalize are your platelet counts. And so the first thing you notice is that you just need less platelet transfusions and then to the point where you need no platelet transfusions. So whereas when you were diagnosed, your platelets might have been 6,000, now they've gone back to normal in the 180 or you know, 220 or somewhere in that range. So they've gone back over to normal ranges, 180,000, 220,000. Normal platelets are about generally 150,000 to 400,000. So that's the first thing you'll see is those cell counts come back. So the platelets come back first, and then your white blood cells will come back second. Um, red cells do come back last for the most part. The other thing that you'll notice is you generally feel better. So when you, those blood counts do recover, the fatigue will go away. The shortness of breath will go away. Um, the risk of infections generally goes away also. When our white blood cells are very low, like they often are with an initial diagnosis of AML or with the treatment of AML, we are very prone to developing infections, and those are spontaneous infections, no problem. So by and large, those issues will all go away. If they don't go away, if you find that you're still needing transfusions, then that's, that's a situation where uh, the AML can be refractory to upfront treatment. Um, the other way that you know if the AML is still there is by doing a bone marrow biopsy. 
the thing you have to always be a little bit cautious about with the bone marrow biopsy, though, is you want to make sure that you're not doing it too early. So, for example, um, when people get high-dose chemotherapy for treatment of AML, they often get a bone marrow biopsy about two weeks after that treatment started. And that's to more let us know, do we expect you to go into remission or not? That's not a guarantee of whether you're going to go in remission or not. So really you want to wait until your blood counts recover and then do a bone marrow biopsy at that time. So those are the key aspects of knowing if the AML is there or not. Now, if you still see that you're needing transfusions and there are still those leukemic cells or those blasts floating around in the blood, then those are patients that unfortunately haven't responded to treatment. It's a great overview in terms of like labs and bone marrow biopsy and symptoms to, to consider. Um, how common is relapse after treatment in AML? Is there a statistic you could share with us to give us a, a better sense of how common relapse is? And then maybe talk a little bit about what group of patients are most likely to experience relapse. Sure. So uh, the relapse kind of depends on what the treatment regimen is that you're going to end up deciding on. Um, and we can stick with most patients if they're going to go on to a bone marrow transplant first and foremost. So relapse can happen as frequently as, and, and remember, this is people going into remission initially, so this, this carries a little bit of difference also, but it can happen as, as often as 40 to 70% of the time. The big factors that we look at for patients um, and the things that traditionally have helped guide how they're going to respond to therapy is what is their genetic risk? And you say, well, how do I know what my genetic risk is? When you're first diagnosed with AML, they do a bone marrow biopsy or they send off your blood if there's enough leukemic cells in the blood. And they send, they, they send it to the lab to be looked at for two things. One is what's the cytogenetics? And so those are what, the, what do the chromosomes look like? What do the actual genes look like? So, for example, if you're female, your genes are XX. If you're male, your genes are XY, and there's um, uh, 46 chromosomes overall for males and females. Uh, in AML, what you find is that those cytogenetics, those, those chromosomes are disrupted often, and there are bad uh, or poor risk features that go with that. We call it unfavorable risk features that go with just the genes themselves. The other thing that we do increasingly now is look for, for mutations. And those mutations can be bad, and a bad one, for example, will be FLT3 ITD or internal tandem duplication, so that's FLT3, whereas they can also be good, which is one that's good is called nucleophosmin 1 or NPM1. But what you want to know at the initial diagnosis is what's my genetic risk? So there's favorable genetic risk, and those favorable genetic risk patients are patients we think might do okay with chemotherapy alone, meaning they might be cured by chemotherapy alone. And for the most part, their risk of relapse is still fairly high. You know, it's still probably somewhere around 40% or so, maybe 50% risk of relapse. Um, people who are intermediate risk, which falls in between favorable and unfavorable, have a risk of relapse that might be even as high as 60%, even with a transplant. And then the lowest is patients that fall into the unfavorable risk classifications. And those are patients that might have as high as a 60 or 70% chance of relapse. So those are things that you all want to take into consider initially at diagnosis, whether you think that the chemotherapy alone will be enough and whether someone has to go on to a bone marrow transplant. So with these statistics in mind and being quite high for certain 
risk categories for people, um, is it important to talk about the potential of relapse up front and maybe create a plan more proactively for if that were to occur? Does that generally happen in, in clinic discussions? So traditionally it's not. It is starting to enter to the mainstream a little bit more, and that's because we can detect at lower levels when we expect relapse to happen. And as I mentioned before, we talked briefly about measurable residual disease. And so that's a process by which you can do tests on the bone marrow and look at that very, very low level, that 1 in 10,000 level. Because we know if you still have that small level of positivity, you will relapse at some point. If you do not, though, then there's a potential that you might be cured much earlier. And what we're starting to do now is talk to patients about, okay, we can still small, see a small level there. We need to give you this medication now. You know, or we don't see any small level there. We don't need to give you this medication. Or we don't need to do this bone marrow transplant. So that is a way that we're increasingly able to treat patients when we know that there's, you know, either a very high or virtually uh, definite risk of relapse and prevent that relapse from happening, or hopefully prevent that relapse from happening, right? Because, you know, once again, these treatments, they're designed to put you back into remission or designed to eradicate leukemia. Unfortunately, they don't always do that. Mm -hmm. So is MRD testing being used as standard of care? Like, that should be happening with every patient with AML. Uh, I think so. You know, I think we're really starting to get there now. Um, a lot of centers don't do the MRD testing themselves but there are national centers that do. Um, and it's easy to send out for, it's, you know, we, we actually send out our samples here. Um, so it's, it's not a problem. It takes a little bit of time to get those samples back, but usually you get the results back within about a week or so. So it is still, it, it's very useful to me to know if it's there or if it's not there. We're learning stuff still though. We're learning more information on this. We know that it's bad if there is that very small level that MRD positive. We know that's generally bad. We're getting better or we're starting to do studies to figure out can we intervene on that and prevent that from happening. So that's still hanging out there a little bit. But it's certainly, I would say, a standard of care in terms of knowing if people are in remission or not. And we're starting to really uh, design studies based on the presence or absence of MRD. Mm, okay. So what are some suggestions or words of advice you have for patients who have relapsed when they are trying to determine their next step? Yep, so that's a great question. And um, I mentioned before a little bit about that genetic risk and different mutations that might be present. And we do have some drugs that are available now, and these are FDA-approved drugs, for specific mutations that are out there. So one thing I would say is if you didn't have the mutations at baseline, it's possible that those, remember I said before that you have the dominant clone, then you have subclones. It might be that the mutation was there, it was just a subclonic diagnosis, and now it's the dominant clone when you relapse. So the first thing that you always want to do when somebody relapse, relapses is always take full account of what is their leukemia doing right now. So what is it? What is it? Is it the same leukemia that was there before? Is it a different leukemia? Does it have a different mutational profile? And is there a drug that maybe would help target it? Now, just because there's a drug that targets it doesn't mean you're going to respond to that drug, but it gives you another treatment option. So that's an important thing to know right off the bat. So you want to make sure, okay, I've relapsed now. Do I know everything there is to know about the leukemia? Have I repeated a bone marrow biopsy? Have I reevaluated that genetic risk? 
And you want to have all that information in first so that you know what options you have in terms of therapy moving forward. So can you talk a little bit about the different avenues of therapy that could happen after relapse? Does that mean more chemotherapy? Does that mean another transplant? Like what, what might that look like? So it can take a lot of different um, a lot of different uh, pathways here. So um, the first is always how's the patient doing? How are they feeling? What's their age? And what would they be able to tolerate based on both age and medical comorbidities? You know, do they have heart failure also? Do they have breathing problems? Do they have kidney problems? Because once again, you don't want the treatment to ever be worse than the disease itself. Um, but it can take the part. It can take the form of more chemotherapy. It can take um, some drugs that aren't quite chemotherapy. So the FDA-approved ones now are drugs like venetoclax, drugs like gilteritinib, drugs like mitostorin, drugs like uh, enosidinib and ivacidinib. So those are all different drugs that, um, like venetoclax is fairly uh, agnostic for different targets, but um, both mitostorin and gilteritinib target FLT3, whereas um, uh, the enosidinibs and ibocidinibs target IDH2 and IDH1 respectively. So those drugs are out there that can have single agent activity that you can use. Um, if you haven't, and generally speaking, if you've got something before, it's probably less of a chance that that specific regimen is going to work again. Um, so if you got intensive chemotherapy before, you might get a different form of intensive chemotherapy. You might get a drug like azacitidine or decitabine with venetoclax at that point. You might get something targeted at that point. If you got the azacitidine or decitabine venetoclax up front, which is an increasingly popular option for our older patients, then you might be getting a, a drug that's more targeted later on, or even low-dose cytarabine and another drug called glastogib, which is also FDA-approved. So a lot of it's going to take the specific characteristics of that patient and then characteristics of their leukemia, and you're going to kind of meld those two things together to figure out what the best option is for them. Typically, you'll only go on to a, a second bone marrow transplant if you had one before if you get back into a remission again. Um, there are sometimes cases, and uh, I have a patient right now, where we attempted to cure them with chemotherapy alone, and then unfortunately the cancer has come back, so now they're going for their first transplant evaluation. So that's another thing, too. And, you know, the other part to it is can you go to transplant right away? Well, you probably can, especially if you're only in that MRD-positive state where we caught the leukemia again, meaning that the leukemia hasn't really fully manifested itself. Um, but you could probably just go to that transplant again. And once again, that's talking to, to your physicians, both your leukemia physician and your transplant physician, or if they're the same person, they need to talk to themselves. Yeah. So let's get a little bit more specific and talk about immunotherapy. Um, so can you give us an overview of what immunotherapy is and why it seems to be a promising area of research for AML? So immunotherapy is, is the whole idea that, that you're taking the immune system somehow and that you're uh, using that immune system to kill off cancer. Um, so the, the widest, you know, the longest tenured immunotherapy that's out there is allogeneic stem cell transplant. So an allogeneic is a transplant from somebody else. An autologous transplant is your own blood. Um, an allogeneic transplant, the uh, major therapeutic effect of an allogeneic stem cell transplant, or allo transplant for short, is that graft versus leukemia effect. And that's the idea that the cells that you get from somebody else actually serve, 
service surveillance and they kill off any residual tumor cells. And we found this out over the years of, of bone marrow transplant. So interestingly, um, if you ever go to the, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, the first transplants were also done in Cooperstown, New York. Um, and they were done by uh, E. Donald Thomas, who's considered the father of transplant. And these were done in the 1950s, and, and they didn't work out so well, and so they did a, went back to the drawing board to figure out how to do this. But they initially thought, or the way the transplant was initially developed, was to give high doses of chemotherapy or radiation because it was thought that, you know, the chemo or the radiation is going to cure all the cancer. And then because we've killed off all the blood cells, though, the blood cells aren't going to come back, we have to give them from somebody else. So that's the idea that you'd have a donor for the transplant. Um, and they thought that initially, even when they first started doing transplants. And then interestingly, in the 1980s, they found that patients who had a little bit of graft-versus-host disease, so this wasn't graft-versus-host disease that was life-threatening, but those patients that had a little bit like a rash or um, maybe some dry eyes or something like that, those are the patients that did better long-term and their leukemia didn't come back. And that's when they started to figure out, oh, this really seems to be that the donor cells are circulating around and killing off any of those residual leukemia cells. And so we've kind of been chasing that for all these years ever since. Um, immunotherapy has really become a hot topic in, in all of cancer biology because of the effects you've seen probably with lung cancers now and melanomas and kidney cancers and those sorts of things. But it's really always been there for, for acute myeloid leukemia. And then more recently, uh, there was some nice data that came out at last year's American Society of Hematology meeting for a drug called magrolimumab, which is um, a drug that basically blocks these don't eat me signals. So there's all cells to prevent these macrophages, which are these professional cells that go and gobble up different cells from eating you. They, they have this, this, this uh, molecule that they, or this um, receptor that they, they put out. Um, and what the drug does is it, it blocks that and shuts it off. So then you, you can use your macrophages to gobble things up. So, so that's a form of immunotherapy. So, um, and that's really where a lot of uh, my interest sort of came from. And, interest in this is, you know, we've had this immunotherapy that's worked for so long for, for AML. Are there ways that we can actually pull the levers on the immune system to get the, the patient's own cancer to recognize, excuse me, their own blood cells to recognize and attack the cancer? And probably more recently, you've seen a lot of the effects of these chimeric antigen receptor modified T cells or CAR T cells that have come, up there, come out that have been so successful with uh, acute lymphocytic leukemia and the lymphomas. So immunotherapy is obviously not a new term or a new area of study. Um, and I'm curious your thoughts on, do you feel like in other blood cancers, immunotherapy has been more effective than AML? Are we kind of a, a bit behind here? Or do you feel like we're making pretty good progress? I don't think it's been more effective in the long term just because of how effective bone marrow transplant, allogenic, that allo stem cell transplant is as a curative measure for AML. I do think AML is a little bit behind more so with the newer therapies. And for that, I'm talking about like things like CAR T cells. Um, there are also different drugs that we give quite a bit in the clinic called bispecific antibodies. And so what those are is those are antibodies that both bind to a tumor cell and then get your own T cells, which are immune system cells, it binds to those cells as well, and it actually brings your immune system cell, that T cell, close to the cancer cell, and it stimulates it to kill off the cancer cell. So those bispecific antibodies are being used increasingly in acute lymphocytic leukemia and in lymphomas, um, and they're actually FDA-approved with acute lymphocytic leukemias and probably will become approved 
pretty soon with lymphomas, and that's using your own immune system to recognize and attack the cancer. You might have also seen um, the immune checkpoint inhibitors that are used for Hodgkin lymphoma. And Hodgkin lymphoma is a, is a type of lymphoma that, that really suppresses the immune system quite a bit, and that those drugs work in Hodgkin lymphoma. So I think we've fallen behind a little bit. It's not a through lack of effort, though, because they've tried some of these other drugs, and they just haven't quite worked out all that well yet. And the other problem is that AML by itself, you know, when you think about AML, most of the targets on AML cells also are targets on normal cells. So that's just something we have to be a little bit careful about. Mm. So can you give us some background information on your specific trial? Um, and I'd like for you to take us through the evolution of the project. I think it's been something you've been working on for many years. So I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the whole, the whole um, I owe a lot of this to my mentor. Uh, his name's Peter Quisenberry, um, and he he um, he's been in practice since really the 1970s. Um, and he started two transplant centers, uh, one at University of Virginia, one at UMass. And while he was at UMass, um, they were very very interested in giving donor cells, but not giving high doses of chemotherapy. So traditionally, the thought was, was that you always had to give high doses of chemotherapy or you had to give high doses of radiation therapy to allow for those donor cells to come in and do something called engraft. And what engraftment means is that those cells can go in and they can start taking over the blood cell production system of your body. Um, and his thought was, well, this is all about competition. So you can actually give some cells and some of those small number of the cells will engraft and then you can actually use those donor cells to target the loop target the leukemia or blood cancer um, uh, effectively. So they tried actually just giving people transplants with less uh, chemotherapy or radiation beforehand. Um, and when they did that, they, they found that the patients, the donor cells didn't stick around, but patients had responses. And so that was kind of funny. It's like, why did the patients respond if the donor cells didn't stick around? Um, so they extended that out to people who were half-matched meaning that they're, they're, um, they were only uh, uh, they were an incomplete match. They were a half match for the, the patient. And they gave those cells to them and found that patients, once again, those donor cells didn't stick around, but some patients had some responses, and some of those responses were actually pretty good. Um, and so that, in that process, uh, when you give someone someone, when you give a competent immune system donor cells, you actually – overexcite that patient's own immune system. So one of the most potent stimulators of your own immune system is to actually see white blood cells from somebody else. And in that process, you generate very, very high fevers. Um, a lot of these patients had rashes. And we called that the cytokine release syndrome that happens. And we think that when they generate those high fevers in that giant re rejection response, that you get from the donor cells, in some way that reawakened your own immune system to recognize and attack the cancer. Uh, and some other people picked up on this also. So in China, they did two studies, and they actually were pretty well received. One was in one of our big publications called Blood Journal, and the other was in Journal of Clinical Oncology. And they gave patients these donor cells without the high doses of chemotherapy beforehand. And they had some really, really good outcomes also. So these are things where they're increasing the remission rates from 40% to 80% and increasing overall survival up into the 60 or 70% range. 
which is really important and really important aspect to sort of look at. Um, so what we did is, is, you know, a few years ago, this is about six years ago or so, we thought, well, what happens if you give someone with leukemia just the donor cells? And does that generate enough of an immune response to, to actually get them to recognize and attack their cancer? And what we found is that it doesn't seem to do that. Um, it seems like you need something else in there to uh, help at least get rid of some of the cancer cells to begin with to allow that immune system to work. And so that's why we've gone to our current study, which is to give that drug gemtuzumab, which is a sort of specialized directed chemotherapy to leukemia cells, and then we give donor cells afterwards. So they get the doses of the gemtuzumab over, um, over three different days, uh, so on days one, four, and seven, then they get those donor cells. And the idea is that those donor cells, when your body sees that, it's going to reject those donor cells. It's going to generate this big immunological phenomenon, and then it's going to actually have your own blood cells recognize and attack your leukemia cells. So we're real excited about this program and, and um, are still working on uh, getting patients treated on it. Yeah, it's super interesting to think about. Um, who would you say is the ideal candidate for this trial? So these patients that we're treating right now are not frontline patients. They're patients that have relapsed or refractory acute myeloid leukemia. So they have AML that's either gone into remission and then can't come back, or they have AML that's never gone into remission. Um, and really, it's any of those patients who then have a donor. Uh, and, you know, we have to, whenever you do a study like this, you have to talk to the FDA and things that let you do and things they won't let you do. Um, and the FDA has required that they have to have a first or second degree donor who's willing to give uh, a donate their white blood cells for this treatment. Um, and so that, you know, first or second degree donor is a son or a daughter or a parent or a um, nephew or niece um, or even aunt or uncle or all the different sort of uh, donors we can take for these patients um, to give them these treatments. So um, that's, that's really all you have to have. And then you have to have adequate um, heart and kidney function and that type of stuff. So those are some things also. But generally speaking, if you can walk into the doctor's office and you have a family member who's willing to donate white blood cells uh, and you have relapsed or refractory AML, then you can go on this study. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, um, and the trials only, is it only being done with you at Rhode Island or are there other sites? Yeah, it's just available for us here in Providence, Rhode Island, um, at okay. uh, Rhode Island Hospital Lifespan Cancer Institute. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about donor leukocyte infusion. Um, can you walk us through the process of what receiving that entails? And do I want to clarify for people who are listening who might maybe start Googling, um, are donor leukocyte infusions and donor lymphocyte infusions referring to the same thing? Uh, that's a good question, and they pretty much are. Um, so when, when we've changed it to leukocyte infusions because we, we know we're giving them white blood cells and we base it on the lymphocyte number, we just don't know what the putative cell is, and so all we know is we're just labeling all we're giving them. But that's also what they'll generally be doing when you're getting a donor lymphocyte infusion also. Um, so remember, like I said before, uh, we can go back a little bit. So the, one of the main curative measures of, a, of AML is to get that bone marrow transplant, that allogeneic stem cell or bone marrow. And stem cell and bone marrow, they're slightly different, but for, for simplicity, let's just keep them as the same. So that transplant is the curative measure for AML. 
The problem with transplant is that not everybody who gets AML can have a transplant. And often patients that are over 75 years of age are not candidates for transplant. Um, and so to get that transplant initially, you have to sort of be fit enough and young enough to be able to get it. Now, if your leukemia comes back, those are the patients that, in general, are the candidates for a donor lymphocyte infusion. And donor lymphocyte infusion is what your doctor is going to call it because that's what it historically has been designated as, and that's really based on their CD3 number that they collect from your donor. But in those instances, if you have AML, you got a transplant, and they find that your blood counts are off or they're just doing monitoring, that they have standard monitoring for your leukemia, and they find that your cancers come back, they will probably talk to you about doing a donor lymphocyte infusion. And the idea of that donor lymphocyte infusion is it will help your, your graft, it will help those donor cells recognize and attack your cancer. The other thing they're going to do, though, is remember you're getting someone else's immune system, you're getting someone else's blood cells, you're going to be on drugs that suppress your own, suppress that immune system from recognizing and attacking the rest of your body and causing graft-versus-host disease. So if they do see the leukemia coming back, the first thing they do is they stop, start dropping down those immunosuppressive drugs. And, and one of the most common ones is tacrolimus. They might also be using drugs like mycophenolate, mofetil, or, but there's these drugs that they have you on that suppress that donor immune system from recognizing and attacking your cancer. And generally that that immunosuppression is, is tapered over time. So it's tapered hopefully by, by uh, over the first six months after your transplant. The donor lymphocytes are given because the idea is that that's going to generate this, it's going to attack the cancer cells. So that's when you're going to be thinking about getting a donor lymphocyte infusion. And what do they do? They just gen they, they take out more white blood cells from that donor and that should help that graft re reawaken and attack the leukemia cells. So that's going to be the process of a donor lymphocyte infusion and why they're going to want to give it because the AMLs come back after a bone marrow transplant. But to have that be effective, you already have to have a transplant once. Our study is a little mm -hmm. bit different because it's this donor leukocyte infusion. We're not trying to get those cells in graft or those cells to attack the leukemia. We expressly want to use those cells to, to kind of... Uh, goose up or stimulate your own immune system. So that's what we're, we're using them for a slightly different process. Mm -hmm. So with the infusion giving in, given in your trial, is there risk for graft-versus-host disease? There isn't because the cells don't stick around. So the one thing we do know is, is that by 48 hours, all those donor cells, for the most part, are out of the patient's body. They might stay at some very, very low level. So before I talked about cells being present at one to 10,000, they might stay at that like one to 10,000 level or that very micro level. They might still stick around at extremely low levels, but nothing that would lead to graft versus host. It is something though that we watch for. So we have to watch for, we have to catalog for that. So it's something we look out for, but we've not seen it in any patient so far. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so you briefly mentioned gemtuzumab. Let's talk about that drug a little bit more. Can you explain to us what it is and how it works? Yeah, so gemtuzumab is um, it, it's a drug that was developed in the 2000s, and it was actually FDA approved, and then it got pulled from the market, and then it got reapproved again. Um, and what it is is it's it's uh, it's this neat class of drugs that's called an antibody drug conjugate. And so um, on on the surface of every cell that you have 
you have these little, uh, it's like these little tags that are on the surface. Um, and different cells have different tags. And leukemia, for the most part, AML for the most part, has a tag called CD33, which just stands for cluster differentiation 33. So it's this little tag that's on the surface. And what gemtuzumab does is it has a, um, it has an, it has an antibody, and then it has a drug that's stuck onto the antibody. And the antibody binds to CD33. The drug is this dr class of drug called, called um, uh, a microtubule inhibitor, which is a classic chemotherapy type of drug. So what happens is that the drug attaches to the leukemia cell and binds to that cell and gets brought in, and so it delivers the chemotherapy directly to that cell. Um, they thought initially this would be a boon, you know, this was a new kind of way to figure out how to deliver the chemotherapy to uh, leukemia patients and, and that it would fix all leukemias. It doesn't quite do that. Um, and initially got pulled from the market because it, it did seem like that there were, uh, it didn't seem to pr uh, confer any benefit for patients. But they looked back and found that there's subsets of patients that it does seem to confer benefit and seems to confer a, a very good benefit. And the other thing was dosing. So they seem to be giving too high of a dosing initially early on. And that if you lower that dosing down, so for example, in the trial, we lower that dosing down to what's the FDA-approved dosing now, and that seems to, to at least confer benefit to, to where if it's relapse or refractory AML, it seems to put about a third of patients back into some form of a remission. Interesting. I, I was reading um, the way I interpreted it was that gemtuzumab is most effective in lower-risk AML, and so to me, these relapse refractory patients are more higher risk AML, so I was glad that you kind of talked a little bit about that. That was interesting to me. Yeah, it, it so, is. So it seems to work best in the patients that have favorable risk AML. It does. And that was based on, and remember, those, those are the patients whose AML responds to chemotherapy, right? So those are the chemotherapy sensitive is the way you can sort of think about it. Those are the chemotherapy sensitive group of AML patients. So how would a patient know if they have CD33 positive AML? Is that all patients? Uh, that's almost all patients. Rarely, rarely, rarely you might not have it. But it's something that, that simply they'll do when, when you have your initial pathology done. They'll have something called flow cytometry, which will look for that marker on the cell surface. Okay. Um, so how far away, in your opinion, are we from seeing immunotherapy as part of standard of care for AML treatment? I don't think you're very far away at all. Um, you know, there, there are newer drugs that are coming out. There are drug combinations that are coming out. Um, there are increasingly different ways to turn off and turn on the immune system. And I think as we get that figured out, uh, one of the big barriers to doing transplants for everyone, like I talked about before, are the side effects of the treatment. The high doses of chemotherapy you have to give somebody to get the bone marrow transplant to engraft or to work. Um, the, the other part is that risk of graft-versus-host disease, right? And with these different immunotherapy treatments, you're lowering that you're not having risk of graft-versus-host. Now, certainly you can have other autoimmune conditions crop up, which can be managed but you also aren't having to give the high doses of chemotherapy anymore. So something that we know works is putting in that new immune system, that new immune system that doesn't get blocked by the cancer, are now 
you know, I think you'll see these drugs develop. And it might not be all of these drugs, but I think it will be some of them. And I, I think like we talked about before, that drug magrolimumab, that anti-CD47 is, I think, something you're going to see re really soon come out to show to be effective for patients with AML. I hope it does. Um, it's got certainly all the initial uh, earlier phase clinical trials that are pointing towards that. Um, but I do think you'll probably see more on the horizon as well. So, and I think you'll see that in the next one or two years. You said one or two years? For some of them to come out, yep. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's exciting. Were there any other, like, major immunotherapy classes that maybe you didn't mention? You said CAR-T, bispecifics. Was there any others that are being looked at that are exciting yeah, to you? Yep, so the regular monoclonal antibodies. So monoclonal antibodies are drugs that, that bind to a specific target. And then those get your own immune system to recognize and attack the cancer. And they get other these different arms of your immune system to kill off the cells. So, so that's a class that's out there, those antibody drug conjugates, bispecific antibodies, CAR-Ts they're still looking at for AML. Um, but I think you'll see the potential for all of these to show up. And some of those monoclonal antibodies target these different immune things, like um, uh, there's a couple of drugs out there that target uh, these molecules called PD-1 or PD-L1. There's some other ones out there that target one called Tigit. Um, there's some that target another one called TIM-3. So there's a lot of them that are kind of in the pipeline right now that are being looked at and um, that might be overexpressed in, in some AMLs. Or, you know, the other interesting thing is could you use these in combination together and could you use them to sort of trap the AML to kill it off or to express more of something and kill it off? And those are things that we're trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. So I want to make sure we have time for questions. So I want to wrap up my questions, but I think this is a pretty important one to end on. And I just want to see if you have any final thoughts or extra things to mention for patients who have relapsed um, and they're considering a trial like yours or other immunotherapy options in a clinical trial setting. What, what other words of wisdom might you have for them? So, you know, I think one of the big things is always um, you want to go in realistic and, you know, clinical trials are great, but you also want to know, well, what, you know, what, what are the, what's the potential benefit and what are the side effects or things you always want to know. Um, you also want to know what your options would be off of study. Uh, the, the only real path forward in the treatment of AML, though, is, is to have more clinical trials. And I think I, I saw, I think on your, your website, Katie, or we'd mentioned this before, that only a fraction of patients with AML actually end up going on clinical trials. So one of the ways that, that childhood ALL, childhood acute lymphocytic leukemia, has gotten so much better at being treated is, is that, you know, most of those patients do go on study. So they do learn things, do learn better ways of treatment. And I think we have to do better ways of getting people on studies and making it easier for them to get on studies. So it's not that it's the patient's fault, it's just that we don't have the studies open appropriately for them to get on studies effectively and easily and safely too, because that's a big thing that we want to know as well. So, and those are things that we're working on uh, throughout the, the, the U.S. with these different cooperative groups working together to try to get more targeted studies out that kind of keep people on pathways and allow them to get treatments. That's great to hear that there's an initiative on um, increasing accessibility to these trials. Um, we've noticed that too as a foundation and we have 
done somewhat of um, our first iteration of a clinical trial finder tool for AML patients. Um, we want to work to help patients simplify the, the trial uh, finding process because there are so many trials out there, it's overwhelming to know um, which may be appropriate for you personally. Um, and so we have this clinical trial finder tool on our website um, and the second iteration of it coming very soon is that um, by entering some of your health information, um, it will be able to narrow down trials even further for you and that it'll show you the trials to, that you meet the inclusion criteria for and exclude the ones that you would not be able to participate in. So um, you're right in that it, it, it takes both sides. It takes the patients being connected to the trial and um, the researchers and um, organizations really working to increase the accessibility of these trials. It's really great insight. Thank you for that. Yeah, definitely. So I think that's I'd one like, of the keys. Yes, absolutely. I'd like to open it up now for caller questions. So if you have any questions about Dr. Reagan's research or anything we discussed today, um, you can call in to 515-602-9728. And once you're on and ready to ask your question, press one on your keypad. Um, I see a few popping up here. So um, let me unmute caller that ends in 1034. I'm unmuting you. Hi, Dr. Reagan, thank you so much for um, sharing your insight and for this trial. I think just as a cancer patient, I just think that's the way that this new discoveries are going to happen and things are going to be cured is if we participate in clinical trials. So I'm all for it. Um, I have a question for you about running an immune system panel. Like, as all these immunotherapies, the bispecifics and the antibody drug conjugates and the CAR-Ts and all those are being developed, um, it would be so nice to, to know ahead of time if a patient would or wouldn't respond to the therapy. Is there any type of immune system panel that's being developed or looked at to kind of predetermine who might do best with some of these therapies? Yeah, that, that's a really interesting question overall and something that um, they don't really know right now. It sort of depends on what therapy you're giving. Uh, it's funny because, um, you know, in, in the cancer center that we have some thoracic oncologists and they're, they're asking the same questions about their immune checkpoint inhibitors and can they find patients who are going to respond to it and patients who are going to have side effects from it also. That's another piece to it. Um, the good news, you know, so just if you took one of the bispecific antibodies, though, uh, and that's a drug called blenitumumab or blencyto, and that's used for acute lymphocytic leukemia. Um, and what that the response rate for that in people who have MRD positive um, BALL is uh, 80%. So most patients are actually responding, meaning that 80% of people go from the MRD positive to MRD negative, which is like crazy numbers, right? So it seems like most patients respond to those sorts of treatments. But you're absolutely right, uh, figuring out ways that um, the immune system, measuring to see if the immune system will respond is extremely important. And the other thing you always want to consider, too, is the more treatments you go through, the more beat up the immune system is going to be. So, uh, 
you know, one of the other questions, and, and this is happening more in myeloma right now, they're trying to push those treatments to early in the treatment course so that they um, don't have as, as, a, uh, as uh, an exposed immune system or as a, um, a run-down immune system as they would have had earlier in the treatment course. Yeah, so interesting. And one more follow-up question. Um, as you look at the immunotherapies and you're kind of weighing the, the pros and cons of each one, do you really look at it by just genetic factor? You know, like if you have a CD33 protein, you should do X or this. And um, if you have something else, or do you look at it and kind of weigh, um, well, the antibody drug conjugates might be more potent because they're using the immune system to deliver this toxic payload versus maybe, you know, the bispecifics that are just using the immune system as a whole? I, I don't know. Do you, how do you weigh that? So, so some studies will do it based on um, uh, targets and what targets those are. So if you do have an inhibitor, you're going to be shuttled into the one of those that has a, a target for it. And that's a big, a big buzzword that's really entering uh, acute myeloid leukemia clinical trial development is targetable versus non-targetable. And um, targetable means those, those drugs that you have an inhibitor for a very specific mutation like FLT3 or IDH1 or 2, whereas non-targetable are, are drugs that are more like the BCL2 inhibitor like venetoclax or things like the magrolimumab, which is the anti-CD47 monoclonal. So those don't have, but they still sort of have a target because you still have CD47 that you have to express, although it, that's more expressed on your immune system cells. So um, there are some of those that come into play. Some of it also is still based on is the patient going to tolerate the therapy or not? Is there traditional chemo backbone to it along with some novel agents, or is it just novel agents? Is it a combination of novel agents? And the thing you always have to sort of keep in the back of your mind is um, even what's perceived as a less toxic therapy because it's not traditional chemo can still be pretty toxic because of the different pathways it can inhibit. Okay, great. Thank you so much for answering the question. Sure, thank you. Okay, I think we have time for maybe one more um, caller ending in 3268. I'll unmute you now. Hi, thank you, Dr. Reagan, um, and to the moderator. Uh, we appreciate you answering all of our questions. I was calling to find out if your study would be beneficial for um, a healthy but relapsed 82-year-old woman. Uh, yeah, so that's one of the, the benefits. That the, the only, like, our exclusion criteria is pretty wide-ranging, but the big one that we don't include in any exclusion criteria uh, is age. So it really takes any age. Um, you can't have a bone marrow transplant before, so that's an allogeneic stem cell transplant. Um, that's one of the big outliers. But as long as someone has adequate uh, kidney and liver and heart function and um, basically it could walk into the office, like I said before, that, that – they would be a candidate for the trial. And that's one thing that we really wanted to do with the study, too, is, is make it so that most patients would be able to go on it. Um, because the patients we have treated, it has been pretty well tolerated overall. Okay. Because she's had the um, the Dacogen and the Venetoclax combo and F worked for a year and a half, and then she yep. relapsed. And she's on the, yep. uh, the IDFA right now. She's been on IDFA for a couple of months, and it yep. doesn't. we're not sure if it's working. So... Would we yep. just contact if we're interested? Would we? How would we follow up? Yeah, so actually um, you can just write on clinicaltrials.gov. It's right there, and it has all of our contact information right there. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, sure, no problem. 
and that's a great source for everybody. Just while I'm out here, uh, Katie's got this this other website that um, sounds terrific. I haven't been on it yet, but the way you can find clinical trials local to your place is, is this clinicaltrials.gov, um, which will have all the clinical trials that have been registered on there. I can help as well. Um, so if you want to contact me directly, my email is Katie K A T I E at healthtree.org. Thank you. Okay, um, I think we might have time for one more quick one. This um, keypad's been hit for quite a while, so I, I wonder, let's see, ending in 3273. Do you have a question for Dr. Reagan? No? Okay, um, so that's all the time we have for caller questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Reagan, for joining us today and letting us know that there's so much progress being made on the treatment of AML, especially for those with relapsed or refractory disease. We wish you all the best in your continued great work. Oh, thanks a lot, Katie, and thanks everyone for being on, and especially if, if you're a caregiver or a patient afflicted with AML, you know, we are we are working uh, to try to, to make treatments better and to, to try to make the whole experience uh, better. But thank you for all your all your patience so far. You've given us such great insight. I've learned a ton, and I, I know everybody else has too, so we really appreciate your time. No problem. Take care. Thanks for listening to Health Tree Radio for AML. Join us next time to learn more about what's happening in AML research and what it means for you.